All right, so we, uh, we're, gonna, we're in a series right now um, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've been going through this. We've been reading through the entire Bible over this past year. We're calling this the Year of Biblical Literacy. We didn't create the name. We kind of borrowed it from other churches that have done this before. I'll show you a quick little slide as to kind of where we're at right now if you've been reading along uh, through the Bible with us. We obviously started in Genesis. We made our way all the way through down to now, where this past week we literally started now reading through the New Testament. So one of the things that I, I want to encourage you to think about, if you started with high intentions, good intentions, noble intentions, and you did not, you kind of fell off the train, um, that's okay, totally fine. In fact, I was really, really far behind, in fact, by almost like three books, and I just got caught up, I'm almost caught up, I should say, barely caught up, but... Um, I went on just like a long couple of long hikes, and I just listened to the audio version of the Bible, just read to me, or clean up the house, you're welcome, Sherry, and um, did stuff just around the house that, that, that was a way of just getting scripture read in my mind, and uh, what I would encourage you to do is that if you want to get caught up, just you know, figure out creative ways to be able to do that. If not, it's totally cool to just jump right into the New Testament and begin reading right there. You can, uh, again, we can, there's, there's the rest of your life to read through scripture, make it another goal in 2019, which is weird to even say. But um, my encouragement would be to maybe just jump into the New Testament, because right now we should be in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, it's a great place to begin. In fact, that's exactly what we're teaching right now, Matthew chapter 5 through 6. So you can jump in right there within this particular passage. So what I want to do this morning is uh, we've been going through what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' teaching on what it means to live in accordance or live in agreement, if you would, to God's, God's ideal, God's kingdom, God's reign. And uh, what we have been looking at is a series of passages, just verse by verse, going through this, really trying to understand, uh, catch a glimpse as to what does God intend for those who call him Lord? What does it look like to really truly be a follower of Jesus? So we now can begin to look at what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, though this is not a great definition or great title for this because technically it's not necessarily the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus gave his disciples. It's the prayer that Jesus, who loves his disciples, gave to them to read. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just read this little section here right now and uh, then we'll be, I'll pray and then we'll jump in and begin to take a look at what God has in store for us. So why don't we all stand and we'll read this little section in Matthew chapter 6. Um, I've actually recently discovered that I need reading glasses, so I got reading glasses. I'm a little bit self-conscious, so don't, don't, don't make fun of me. Don't make fun of me. No, this is actually kind of a weird story. Uh, several months ago, I whipped out my Bible, and I started reading it, and I'm like, I can't read this. Like, this is hard for me to read, and I put it down, and I just read it up on the screen. So anyways, I figured out I need reading glasses, so there you go. Don't, make, don't laugh at me. So we're going to read um, the little section right there, verses 5 through 7. They'll just jump in here. So this is kind of a little bit of a backstory. Uh, Balaj was here last week, uh, one of our good friends, a missionary church planner in uh, Hungary. He taught on this for you guys last week, but I want to just kind of use this as a little bit of a backdrop. So Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says several occasions, and when you pray, verse 6, he says, and when you pray, dot, 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 verse 7, and when you pray, you get the idea that Jesus is not saying that if you pray, it's when you pray. It's a part of your life, part of your discipline, part of your routine of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So even right there, some of us right now feeling that tinge of guilt, like, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't pray. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, then Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, but when you pray, pray like this. So I want to read that beginning at verse 
10. He goes on and he says this. Pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Uh, God, right now, uh, this is your word. We see this as scripture that's to be heeded and listened to and unpacked and thought through carefully. God, we pray that you would just help us to learn what is in your heart this morning. Uh, Transform us, God, according to your spirit's power at work in us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. 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 Grab a seat. Uh, Out of curiosity, how many of you have heard of this prayer? Raise your hand. You've you've heard of this prayer before. All right. Um, How many of you, if I were to ask you right now to recite it, would you be able to recite it without actually, this is okay, raise your hand really high, recite it. Okay, um, should I call someone? I'm not going to call on you. This, this prayer is probably one of the most commonly known prayers, and in fact, I would almost even go so far as to say it's overly familiar. And hopefully you understand something about over-familiarity. When something is overly familiar, there's a tendency for it to lose its potency. There's a tendency for it to become routine or rote. I can remember as a young child, I, I grew up in a Catholic church, and I remember going to confession one time and the priest, you know, giving me like, go say five Hail Marys and, you know, 20 Our Fathers, whatever it was. I don't remember exactly what it was. The, but I remember going off into some corner and just saying these prayers as fast as I could, as fast as I could, just getting through them. And the moment I was done, I was just, I felt like I can walk away with a sense of like, okay, I did it. I'm all good. But the reality is, is what, what, I, what I did was equivalent to just nothing more than a religious duty and activity. It had nothing to do with transformation of my heart, which is the whole intention behind prayer, the whole intention behind meeting with God. And I don't know what you think about when you think about prayer or how you have maybe thought about prayer maybe as a young Christian. I know for me, again, another personal example, when I was a brand new Christian, I remember someone turning me on to these books and authors that have written extensively about prayer. In fact, one dude, I can't remember his name, uh, he had prayed so much, like he earned like the nickname Camel Knees because his knees were all like gnarled and nasty because he prayed that much. And I remember reading these as a young child, and just, or young Christian, I should say, maybe it was like 18, 19, and being like, this is amazing, these guys are insane, you become like them. And the reality is, you know, life kind of hits you and you begin to realize like you, you don't become like them. And then over time, you like maybe don't even pray at all. And then over time, their stories become nothing but like guilt and shame to you. So what you have now is sort of this modern reality of like you don't pray, but you feel really lousy about not praying. So we're kind of in this quandary. Like what do we do? Because we know that prayer is something that Jesus says do when you do it. It's part of what we would describe as spiritual formation, being formed into the image of God. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus prayed all the time. And so for us, if we think about the idea of like, I don't pray, um, that should concern you a little bit because maybe, maybe what you are challenged by is a certain idea affixed to prayer. 
So maybe what needs to be done is an unlearning of a false narrative about what prayer is, and then to relearn a new narrative about what prayer is. So in other words, it's akin to basically saying, let go of the baggage, or whatever it is that you think about prayer, however you've been trained to think about it, however your ideas have been formed about prayer, and to allow God to give you a new vision, a new idea, a new paradigm as to what prayer should look like and what prayer actually could look like. And this is, this is where I would just suggest to you that this is, this is what's so amazing about this prayer, is that Jesus literally comes on the scene and says, here's, here's what's up. Here's what it's all about. Here's what it's like. When, when you pray, pray like this. Now, there's a couple of things I want to just initially talk about uh, before we jump into this, and then we'll uh, get into the bigger picture of this. So I think we have a slide up here that uh, some initial observations. Um, number one is the context. Uh, this idea of prayer comes within this larger context of what's described in chapter 6. Uh, it doesn't necessarily use the word spiritual practices, but that's exactly what this is. So in verse 6, he describes, let your righteousness, or when you do your works of righteousness... And then later on in verse 2, he goes on to say, when you are generous, when you give, the idea of giving to the poor, giving to uh, the larger context of, within the, uh, of Judaism, giving away was, generosity was a part of the heartbeat of being a follower of Yahweh, being a part of God's people. Uh, then the one that we look at right now, which is prayer in verses 6-5. And then uh, the idea of fasting, he goes on to say in verse 16, which we'll look at in a handful of weeks from now. But the point of the matter is, most scholars recognize that what, what Jesus is talking about is what we would call works of righteousness. So just pause and think about that for a moment, this idea of works of righteousness. So prayer is a part of the larger corpus of what we can describe as spiritual formation. So here's, here's what I would suggest. In fact, this has been something that God's been putting in my heart a lot over the past several months I feel like I have a lot more to really dig into and understanding even more so about this and even greater putting them into practice. But the idea of being spiritually formed, being formed into the image of Jesus. So here's a question I would ask. What does that look like for you? Let me put it into another context. What is your game plan for being a disciple? What does your activity look like as a follower of Jesus? So I think for a lot of modern Westerners, what they would say is I go to church. But the reality is the average church attendance for an average American is like once every four to six weeks. So think about that. If your liturgy, your typical means of formation, becoming like Jesus, is really only going to church once every four weeks, and maybe you don't read the Bible that often, or maybe you don't really pray because it's not a part of your habit, how, how are we going to be formed? In fact, maybe even ask another question. Are there other forces, powerful forces in this culture in which we live that will shape you? Can you say binge watch Netflix? <laughs> I, I would even suggest like that is an act of formation. You are forming yourself into something. There's a script, there's a narrative, there's a, there's a worldview, there's an ideology that is shaping you. What I would suggest if you're a follower of Jesus there are things that should shape you in your life that should take on a particular action or activity. It should ultimately look like Jesus, of course, but what I'm suggesting is what Jesus is saying is that part of following me involves being generous with your money, involves giving to the poor, involves praying, involves 
fasting. Again, I, we, I won't even touch on fasting today because for some of us, it's like we live in a very gluttonous type of a community and culture. I mean, by and large, we as central coasters, we think a lot about our health and we try to eat healthily and whatnot. But the point of the matter is, is there's still a lot of food. But the idea of practicing an actual spiritual discipline called fasting is, to some degree, might be very radically foreign to us. But I would suggest to you is that all of these are part of what it means to truly be a follower of God. They are activities or habits or, or rituals, if you even want to use that word, uh, as in terms of following God, being shaped. Now, none of these things, I would suggest, have anything to do whatsoever with making you acceptable before God. Right? Just, it's important to note. The more you pray, the more you read your Bible, the more you give your money away to the poor, the more you fast, none of these things God looks at and gives you like a nod of his hat. Good job, you're amazing, I'll accept you. That's not the way it works. But I would suggest this, is that as a follower of Yahweh, as a follower of Jesus, there are things that we can do in our lives, in a, walking in agreement with God, that then begin to create and carve out new rituals, new routines, new liturgies, new habits that then help us become strong, strong as followers of Jesus. And I would suggest this. Prayer is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. So for many of us, we don't pray because we, just, we don't exercise that muscle very often. It's not something we think about. It just sort of lay dormant for the most part in our lives. But here's, here's the great news about this. Prayer is a muscle that can be exercised, right? It's the exact same thing I just said. That as you put into some intentionality to begin to exercise, you'll become better at it. And here's what I would suggest. Beginning where Jesus begins. Praying this prayer. So which leads me to the second observation, which is the prayer itself. So it raises the question, is this a prayer that's to be recited, meaning like a routine, like a liturgical red prayer, or is this to be an informal template? In other words, is Jesus kind of giving us his prayer like a scaffolding to say, hey, here's the basic nuggets, here's the basic gist, here's the basic idea, so when you pray, pray something along this template. And I would say the answer to this question is yes. <laughs> yes, it's both, it's both. In fact, ironically, I'll read a quote from a guy named Scott McKnight. He says this, the recitation of the Lord's Prayer among all Christian traditions, the Reformers, as though this would have been like uh, Lutherans and Calvinists and people that vain, the Reformers emphasized the Lord's Prayer as a template, template, and as to be recited. So in all of these churches, whether it be Catholic, Orthodox, Eastern, Western, Reformed, so on, this has been a typical habit within the church to actually read this prayer, verse by verse, word by word, and, but at the same time as a template to follow and then it goes on to say, this all occurred until the informality of prayers became the rule of the 20th century for some groups of Christians as it's time for many of us to regain what we dropped. Informality has had its day. It's time for some formality too. So here's what he's suggesting. Is that I think in the modern 20th century, 1900s, there was sort of a resistance against tradition, Right? Um, that's why you had this thing called the contemporary church or contemporary worship or contemporary whatever, contemporary evangelicals, contemporary Christianity, whatever you want to call it. But I would suggest this, that in that move, historically, what you had was this radical moving away from anything traditional. Anything that smelled, looked like, acted like, felt formal was sort of to be rejected and resisted. So what I would suggest, in that move, there had been things that had been practiced for, you know, 1900 years that have been rejected, that I would even say 
perhaps even found its root and origins in Scripture itself. So what we're left with in the modern church is we don't even think about the Lord's Prayer anymore. I mean, if we do think about it, it's just like, oh yeah, the Lord's Prayer, I've heard that before somewhere. But the thought of actually praying it daily, maybe even weekly, or the thought of actually using it as a, as a template or as a model to be prayed in my daily interaction with God is very foreign to us. And what I would hope for us to do is kind of maybe rewire our thinking and our understanding about this prayer. So what I would suggest is that if you are new to really um, involving prayer as a part of your life, if that thought is something that's been pretty removed or remote or if you've not done this or the idea of actually having a daily prayer time is foreign to you and you're looking for a nice, simple place to begin, what I would suggest that this is the place. Like, this is it. This is like prayer 101. And I would even suggest that if you are a long-time praying person, this is, this is where you always come back to. Like, you, you never outgrow this because this is literally the prayer that Jesus gives his followers. So my encouragement to you would be to begin here, to think about this carefully, strongly. And then the last thing I want to talk about in terms of initial observations is uh, that it's very centered on God. Uh, very centered on God. Most scholars kind of point out that there's three major big ideas about God that are being communicated here. Number one, God's name. We'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, the second thing we take a look at is God's kingdom. It's about God's kingdom being realized, whatever that is. We'll look at that more next week, which, by the way, next week is our family-style service, which means it will be shorter. Uh, kids will be in here. It's a way of having kids that are part of our church service. We make it fun, so if you've never been to one before, it'll be a lot of fun. It's a little bit noisier than it is right now. Sermon doesn't go as long as normal. You're welcome. And what we also do is it gives an opportunity for our children's ministry workers, who right now are back there, which, by the way, every children's ministry worker that's back there is not in here, which means they, this, that's their church. They didn't get to come into church today. They're serving you. So be sure to thank them for that. Be sure to show them a degree of gratitude. But next week, we're all going to be together. So, and we'll take a look at the subject of the kingdom. Secondly, the idea is God's will that's to be done um, on earth as it is in heaven. So three things that's radically centered on God. So with that being said, let's jump into the prayer, make some final thoughts, and kind of wrap this up. So let's begin to take a look at the main introductory idea of the phrase, our Father. So we'll just look at the phrase. Oh, can we go back to the colorful slide? I want to show you this. So this is kind of break down the next three weeks. We'll look at this um, prayer in three weeks. First, we'll take a look at the our Father phrase, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Hallowed, which you're wondering, what in the world is hallowed? And you're like, I never use that word, hallowed. Yes, you do. Halloween, Halloween. Uh, we, we do use that word, hallowed. It's the idea of something that's holy or sacred. Um, though we wouldn't necessarily look at that day as being holy or sacred, but the point I would make is that it's the same idea, holy. God's name is holy. Second week, like I said, next week we'll take a look at that, and then green three weeks out from now. So let's jump back into this uh, phrase, our Father. So I want to ask you a question. What do you think of, what comes to your mind when you think of the phrase, our Father? Um, audience participation. Anybody? What, do you, what comes to your mind? Our Father. Family. Family? Good. What else? Mom? Strong. I'm sorry, mom. It's gonna like. It's okay, that's cool. To each his own. It's all good. No, I'm just kidding. Strong. Okay, strong. What else? I'm sorry. Provider. Okay. What else? Teacher, patient. Right. Did I get that right? Authority. Okay. What else? Honor. Honor. These are all positive, which is really good. But for some, I know that's not everybody's experience. Because for some of you, you had an abusive dad. For some, your dad was was none of those things that we just described. For some. 
The phrase father could actually bring up uh, deeply painful emotions and experiences that you have. And the fact of the matter is, in, even in a broader, more generalized sense within our culture at large, we can think of the idea of even patriarchy or even abusiveness. So these, these are all ideas. In fact, there's movement, I'm not going to get into it today, that modern, some modern scholars, which I would not agree with, would basically make an argument to say, we've got to get rid of that gender description of God as being father because of how it's become distorted and so on and so forth. So here's the point that I would make, is before any of that ever happens, I would suggest first understand clearly what is Jesus talking about when he uses this phrase. Because obviously Jesus chooses his words carefully. And if Jesus chooses his words carefully, then we need to study it carefully. We need to think about it carefully and understand why did Jesus say this? What was on Jesus' mind? And what would have been in the minds of the first century readers or uh, hearers of Jesus' audience when he mentioned this? So that's what I want to look at right now. So next slide. Jesus' audience, they would have had uh, they would have likely thought of this phrase, our Father, radically different than any of us. So what I would hope for us to think about, so again, I think when we think of the phrase, our Father, we come to it, I think, by and large, if it's, if it's positive, it's, if it, in other words, it's not negative, if it's positive, we come to it in this idea or this ideology of some form of sentimental, like God is a friend, he's a father, he's like a fatherly figure, which is, which is not bad. It's not a bad way to think about it, but that's not initially how Jesus' hearers would have heard the phrase Father. Um, I think it's fine to think about it that way, but what I want to try to do first and foremost is to understand how would Jesus and his hearers uh, have understood this. Now again, remember, Jesus was Jewish. He lived within a Jewish context. He lived as if his life was directly linked to the Jewish history. You You guys follow that? So in other words, everything Jesus taught was linked to this larger historical context or background of Judaism and God at work within the people of Israel. So with that being said, I think there's at least two major ways in which we can think about how Jesus probably would have understood or Jesus' audience would have understood this phrase, Father. Because for some, we've heard maybe teaching that says when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray our Father, that that's unheard of, that's never been done before. The concept of fatherhood was foreign, this is new, it's a novel idea, and it's amazing, isn't it wonderful? And the fact of the matter is that it's not entirely true. That there were others in Jesus' day that referred to or thought about God as Father. Now, they may not have actually used the pronoun to describe God as, in, in, as, a, as a father, as a description to describe God as a father like that. In their prayers, they might describe God as holy or as as amazing or as the author and the uh, ruler over the universe and so on. But what Jesus does is not novel in a sense of introducing a brand new idea of God being father and his people being like sons and daughters. So with that being said, I think there's two major ways in which Jesus' people would have understood this. One is the context of salvation, which we'll read that in a second. The other is in the context of vocation, which in other words, there's something to be done, something to do in terms of partnership with God. So with that, I thought it'd be kind of fun, before we wrap this up, just to take a look at some of the other passages throughout the Old Testament, and probably what Jesus would have been referring to when he uses this phrase, Father. When he says, when he teaches his followers, hey, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who's in heaven, his name's Holy. So listen to the story that Jesus is going to reconnect us with. So next slide, we'll take a look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23 says this, it's exactly the very first place in the Old Testament in which 
this idea comes across. And it is definitely within the context of salvation. So if you're familiar with the story, it's what's called the Exodus. It's the moment in which God steps into time and he rescues his people that are this oppressed minority group under the world militaristic superpower called Pharaoh, right? Egypt. And uh, they're not a world superpower anymore, uh, but in that, ta- in that time they were, and they were exercising dominion and oppression over this uh, minority people group called the sons of uh, Jacob. So God steps in, and he hears their cries, and here's what he says. In Exodus chapter 4, there's like this contest between Moses you know, and God and uh, Pharaoh, who is basically resisting. He's saying, I'm not going to let these people go because they're cheap labor, they're able to make the bricks, they're able to do whatever it is, build the cities that he wants them to do, um, which, again, you begin to mess with someone's economic uh, means of wealth, and now you're going to bring about major disruption to the empire, and he's not happy with that, so he's not going quickly or easily. So God steps in, this is, and the Lord then said to Moses, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Then say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go. So in the story, you're familiar with it, uh, Pharaoh resists even further. It brings about what we call the Passover. Uh, Pharaoh then finally reluctantly lets the people of Israel go. They are now liberated. They are free. So the idea of salvation is linked to exodus, linked to freedom. It's linked to liberty. So the first usage of this word father is to connect the dots with this ancient idea or concept or base note of Israel's freedom and liberty and God's involvement in that. Second thing is I want to take a look at, next slide, is this other idea of vocation. And this is where the story gets, again, a little bit more interesting. Uh, this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 through 17, if you remember the story, it's King David. King David was this amazing king, uh, though he had lots of flaws. Uh, and we see that there's this moment where Dave's, David's thinking about his future, his legacy, and one of the things that he's contemplating is, is I want to build a house for God, meaning like a temple, a place where God's presence can be placed into this thing, So, which is an interesting concept, but uh, nonetheless, throughout the circumstances, God says to David, David, you can't build me a house, your hands are bloodied, good job, thank you for the desire, but your son will end up doing this job, but then God goes on and throws into this promise to David. He says, but I'm going to build you a house. So listen to how God describes this in the language of 2 Samuel. He says, I will establish the throne of his, David's kingdom, forever. And I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house, your kingdom shall be made. Your throne shall be established forever. This is Yahweh saying to David and his descendants. So if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, obviously, there's occasions throughout, many occasions, I should say, in the New Testament, where it describes Jesus being in the lineage of David. What in the world does that mean? It means he's part of this family. He's part of this vocation. Whatever it means to be part of whatever it is that God's up to in this world, Jesus becomes part of this lineage, this family line of God's sonship. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he's described as the son of God or the son of David, it's literally tapping into this ancient historical context. So number one has to do with salvation. Number two it has to do with this concept of vocation. Uh, next slide, I want to take a look at this other passage. It's kind of ties some of these things together. In Isaiah chapter 63, um, it's the time when the children of Israel are in a really bad situation throughout their history. 
they, for the most part, have turned against God. And as a nation, as a nation, they've rebelled against God. And all sorts of bad calamities and circumstances and hardships are coming upon them. And Isaiah is this uh, prophet slash poet. And he's writing under the inspiration of God, and he's, he's fleshing this out. But what I love about this passage is sort of the candid nature in which Isaiah literally is just praying. So listen to this. He goes on to say, say this. Look down from heaven and see from your holy, beautiful habitation. So where does Isaiah envision God? Low or high? Really high. So high, he says, hey, look, look down on us, God, from your habitation. He says, where are your zeal? And your might. Do you feel the pathos in Isaiah's voice? He's like, God, where are you? You're this powerful God, but where are you? We need you. We're not seeing movement. There's no activity. There's no action. Where are you? You seem to be far removed in this holy high habitation. Where we need you, God, is here. You ever feel like that? You ever go through circumstances like that? You're in good company. He goes on to say, the stirring of your inner parts, your compassion, some of your translations might say, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. You ever felt that? God, I feel really far from me and I feel like you do not love me. It's Isaiah, prophet, poet, writing. He goes on to say, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, because obviously Abraham has been dead for a long time, so how could Abraham know us? And Israel does not acknowledge us because Israel is so far off into their own day-to-day stuff, idolatry and injustice, and, and the, 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 the proclivities that they have and the actions that they're living have nothing to do with where our hearts are at. God, our hearts are for you. He says, and Israel does acknowledge us. You, O oh Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From of old is your name. In the beginning of the next chapter, He goes on to say this passage, God, will you tear the heavens and come down? So in visions, he imagines a time, God, we feel like you're so far away from us. We know in the core of our being that you are a father because you've claimed that, you've established that, you've saved us as a people from Pharaoh. We have seen your hand by reiterating the promise of sonship through King David. God, but right now in the midst of our circumstances and calamities and trials and hardships, we feel as if you are not doing anything. We feel as if you are not even present. But we know that you are a father. Do you realize that is what faith is? Faith is not this overwhelming confidence that somehow your life is going to all like, be better in that moment. It's this overwhelming confidence in the nature and the character of God. Even though there are moments and occasions where he's not speaking or he feels really far. And then he re-envisions this time. God, will you rend the heavens? Will you come down? Will you step into our world? And it's not until we come to Jesus where we begin to see the degree to which God begins to answer that prayer. Because Jesus comes on the scene, and he's described himself as the Son, the beloved Son. What Jesus is doing, he's pulling together all of these ancient base notes into himself, and he's saying, I am the means of salvation. I am the means of vocation. In other words, the context of crying out to God as Father 
And this is one other final little thing you got to think about when we talk about sonship. In that ancient culture, in that civilization, to call your, uh, a father, to describe, to call upon a father, is, is yes, involves provision, yes, involves other things, but it also involves this idea that in that ancient culture that your dad was also your teacher. He trained you. Uh, we would have a word for that. We would describe you in the context of being like an apprentice. So if your dad, like, I don't know, did metal for a living or bronze or, I don't know, gardened or was a shepherd or whatever it is, you as a son, you as a daughter would then learn the trade by being with your father and learning what it's like. So in other words, when there were moments of question, moments of pause, moments of like, I don't know where to go next, you would look to your father and then your father would give you direction. Because that's what an apprentice does. He's always looking to the master. So in the garden, we see Jesus praying. And in the garden, he's faced with the reality of a new exodus. He's about to break forth people that were bound by sin, the greatest Pharaoh of all. And he begins to feel the weight of this as he cries out to God, begins to sweat great drops of blood. You're familiar with the story. And then he looks to the Father and says, but Father, not my will be done, but yours. What's happening there? So as if the apprentice son is looking to the master father saying, what's the way forward? I know you're with me. How do I go? Jesus teaches his disciples, when you pray, pray our Father. This prayer is a way, number one, of linking yourself up to the family line of God that says you're saved in Jesus, forgiven, washed, an exodus has happened, a freedom has taken place, liberation for you and your soul and your sinfulness and your defiance has been taken care of. But secondly, this idea of vocation, which means when you call upon God as Father, you're basically looking to God and saying, God, what way? That's what, that's what it means to, to, like in a ruler, in the context of a ruler, a ruler is to rule well, but a ruler always has designated authority, meaning it's given to him by somebody else. In the context of the Bible, all authority is given to God's uh, Adam and Eve originally and ultimately to Jesus. But the idea is that it comes from God and it's to be stewarded. How? By regularly, frequently looking back to our master slash loving provider, God, Father, and saying, what's the way forward? The invitation to pray like this is a way of reminding yourself of who you are and to whom you belong. We either go into this world as sons and daughters of a father who loves us, who sometimes might feel very distant from us, but nonetheless has demonstrated his love to us through Jesus and his death, resurrection, and the cross. Or we go through this life orphans, <laughs> trying to make sense of this world. Another definition or word for that to describe, we go through this life lost. But the invitation of Jesus is always the same to lay down our guard, to put down our defenses, to stop resistance, and to turn to this God who loves us and gave himself for us. To be invited into that prayer, to make that prayer your own prayer. Our Father, who's in heaven, your name is holy, is an invitation to trust this God. I'm going to finish with a little quote from a theologian, a guy named N.T. Wright. He just simply says this. I think he does a good job at Finalizing this, he says, saying our Father isn't just the boldness 
and sheer cheekiness of walking into the presence of the living and the Almighty God and saying, Hi, Dad. It is the boldness and sheer reality of saying quietly, Please, may I too be considered an apprentice son? It means signing, it means signing on for the kingdom of God. That's what it means. When we say our Father, we're in essence saying, God, I want my life to be under your reign, your kingdom power, your authority. I want my life to begin to take upon the nature, the characteristics of who you are, so that when people look at me, they will begin to trace the lineage from my life upwards to see that I belong to a father who loves me and gave himself for me because of his great love. So the rest of us, as we respond, I don't know where you're at, how you think about this, where you're at in terms of your walk with God, where you're at in terms of maybe distance from God. But the invitation for you is to stop where you're at, to turn to this God, to confess your sins, to confess your wrongdoings, to confess your resistance, and to turn to him who will gladly, lovingly, always receive you and accept you so that you too can pray that prayer. Our Father, who's in heaven, your name is holy. It's an invitation to let God's kingdom come through you in this world. So, why don't we all stand? We're going to respond. We're going to come to the table. We have the bread and the cup. It's a way of dipping the bread into the cup to remind ourselves of the deep love that Jesus has for us. So I'm going to pray right now. If you are here this morning and you are either not a follower of Jesus or you feel far from God or even somebody that maybe has had some degree of familiarity with Jesus, but for whatever reason, the reality of walking with him as God and Savior has been really far. It's been remote. I want to give you the opportunity to trust him, to pray with you this morning that that would become a reality for you. And then we'll just sing. We'll respond appropriately. So we all bow our heads, close our eyes. Let me just pray. I'll give you an opportunity. So Jesus, thank you for right now being here in this place. God, we don't have to climb somewhere. We don't have to go searching somewhere. You have made yourself known. And you are a good father. You love us. So even right now, God, I ask that if there's anybody here that just feels this reality of distance between them and you, from their own sin, from their own rebellion, from their own hardness of heart, from their own just whatever. Jesus, draw them near. And if that's you, and you would like to trust Jesus, I want to pray for you. Uh, you can just repeat after me in your own heart, just simple words. It's nothing magical. It's just a simple prayer of trust and confidence in Jesus, confession of sin. And uh, I want to pray for you. So Jesus, right now I trust you as my king. I confess, Lord, to you my rebellion, my sin, my brokenness, my hurt, my pain, my grief. And I ask that you'd make me new. Give me a new life, new hope, new heart. Transform me, Jesus, to become like you. Place confidence and love in you. And help me to walk as one who follows you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Um, if that's if that's